Let's pray. Lord, we come before You again this morning thanking You for Your Word. Thanking You that in it we might find life. And so Lord, I ask for those sitting here this morning that as Your Word is declared, that Your Spirit would indeed impart life. Without that, we're all wasting our time. So Lord, meet us here. Be strong in our presence. Lift us up to You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, last week we began our study of Micah, and we saw that God was called as a witness against the people of Israel and of Judah and their sin. Moreover, we saw that there was a promise throughout chapters 1 and 2 of God judging them. And this judgment was pictured as God coming down from His throne out of heaven and the very mountains melting in His presence. And so Micah 1 and 2 lists for us uh, some of the sins that have provoked this judgment upon God's covenant people. And one of those sins were the wicked leaders of the nation and the wicked preachers of the people. These people lied, they stole, and they were consumed with evil. And thus the people suffered. Today's passage, Micah 3, really is an expansion upon that. It lists more the sins of the leaders and the preachers of Israel. And today we are going to think carefully about the idea of leadership and its impact. There are many different types of leaders and different leadership roles, whether it be civil leadership, leadership in companies and businesses, family, uh, community, volunteer leaders, paid leaders, religious leaders, and non-religious leaders. If you walk into a bookstore or if you watch uh, many videos online, you will notice that the topic of leadership is rather popular. You can buy a bunch of books on how to be a good and effective and popular leader. You can even get a degree, bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or even a doctoral degree in leadership. Um, that's one of, one of the program, programs offered at my seminary was a doctorate in ministry leadership. And ironically, the pastor who was the head of that had to re resign in shame from the school and from the church because of moral failures. I've said for years to many people, uh, most leadership teachers I wouldn't follow to McDonald's. So many leaders in corporate America, in our denominations, in our churches, and in the state generally fall into one of two categories. And I want to stress here some of them, not all of them. One is the person who is obsessed with climbing the ladder to reach some goal of status or money or influence or power. They just have to be a leader. They know they were born to lead. And those who know these people and who watch them climb the ladder, they see it as a, ter a truly terrible thing to behold. Often the people who most want to be leaders are the ones who should least lead anyone. Those who desire their own ends often do tremendous damage in leadership roles. Because once they get that position, everything in life becomes about holding on to that position, holding on to that status, holding on to that power. And these people don't often lead, but they try to manipulate all, the, all of the world to keep that which is most important to them, their leadership. There's a second type of leader closely connected to the first, and that is the, the tyrant. 
This person, likewise, is self-seeking. But he or she rules with an iron fist and they know absolutely everything. So they micromanage and they will not tolerate any whiff of disagreement whatsoever. They must project an air of strength. But they are actually some of the weakest and most insecure people around because they can't handle that there might be someone out there who doesn't agree with them, doesn't see how great they are. These type of leaders don't actually lead as much as they dominate. I want to stress this again. This can be true. Churches, organizations, businesses, governments, and yes, even families. I'm sure we've all experienced such leaders somewhere in life. Deep down, such leaders believe that they are God and that to cross them is blasphemy. There's a third type of leader out there, and this type of leader is really prevalent in church circles. It's the one uh, that gets me banging my head up against the wall more often than not. I call these type of leaders the don't rock the boat guy. To be fair, seminaries have trained pastors for generations in this method of leadership. The pastor's job is only to put out fires, to not create any chaos, to please as many people as possible. Why? Because success in church life is growth. And if you offend someone, you'll probably lose them. If something will rock the boat, then we ignore it. It's as if we have ripped John chapter 6 right out of the Bible where Jesus preaches a sermon that he angers people repeatedly again and again. They say, you don't really mean that, Jesus. And he goes, yeah, I do. No, you don't really mean that, Jesus. Yeah, I do. And everybody leaves Jesus except for the 12. Put that into your leadership course. Just the thought. The don't rock the boat leader turns leader into a useless figurehead who follows and protects the various uh, factions and appetites in his church. It is really anti-leadership. It is a return to the time of the judges. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This type of leadership, I say with no hesitation, is killing American evangelicalism. It is absolutely killing it. I encounter more pastors than I care to admit who know what the right thing is, but there's something they care more about than doing the right thing, and it's not rocking the boat. And so today we're going we're gonna to examine the importance of leadership. That's our first point. Leadership matters. It is important. Consider Micah 3, 1 and 2 again. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and who love the evil? The main reason God is judging Israel here is her leaders. Leadership matters because it reflects who people or who the people are. Leadership matters because it shows the direction the people are heading to and the heart of the people. One of the most interesting things about leadership is that it often leads people directly into God's judgment. And bad leadership is also a judgment from God. So grasp that. God gives a wicked people bad leaders. And bad leaders also lead a wicked people into more wickedness, into more judgment. To consider for a moment the history of the nation of Israel, sometimes she had really good and godly leaders. You have Moses, you have Joshua, David, Hezekiah, Josiah. These men brought blessings and renewal to their people, a people who were still very, very sinful. And they led the people into greater and greater faithfulness. 
We could also consider some of the other leaders, like the judges that God would raise up to deliver a people who cried out for deliverance. But then they would go back into their sin. We could also consider the many more wicked leaders of Israel. If you do your Bible reading challenge throughout the year and you read the whole of Scripture, if you get into First and Second Kings, what you realize is it's an utter train wreck. Like every now and again, Hezekiah pops up, Josiah pops up. But besides that, it's a barren wasteland of absolute losers who defy God and who lead the people into greater judgment. Consider that God gave the nation of Israel Saul to be their king. And Saul reflected who Israel was at that point in time. We often hear that King David... He was a man after God's own heart. That phrase does not mean what you think it means. It does not mean that David was seeking God's heart. But rather, it means that David was the type of king that God would want. David had the characteristics of a godly king. Conversely, Saul was a king after the people's own heart. He was the type of king they wanted. They went to God and they said, we want a king like the nations. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king just like the nations. Sorry, tall people, but he was a tall, he was a tall guy because that means you're a good leader, apparently. But he was a fool. He was insecure. He was more concerned with his own power than he was with actually serving God and the people. And you have the many wicked kings, as I mentioned, in First and Second Kings, Ahab to Jeroboam. The list is rather pathetic but it reflected who Israel was. Brothers and sisters, we can say the same today. As much as we like to criticize our leaders, and often they are very, very deserving of it, they reflect us as a people. They reflect our appetites. Their weaknesses are our weaknesses. Several years ago, when a certain individual who got got elected, I won't mention his name, a congregant called me all in a, in a fluster. He was having a really hard time understanding how that person, with all of those obvious character flaws and moral failings, could ever get elected. And I gently told him, do those sound familiar to you at all? Are those not the sins that we as a nation and culture praise and revel in and are entertained by again and again? Well, it's easy to judge him for those sins, It's really annoying when people do that or when they're the same people who profit in those sins. We complain about politicians who spend us in the national debt while we as a nation spend ourselves in the personal debt left and right. We complain about self-seeking politicians while we are told that the greatest good in life is to seek your own heart and your own desire and we seek to promote ourselves endlessly through things like social media. We complain about the sexual sins of our leaders, while as a nation we entertain ourselves with movie and songs that just promote and glorify such sins. Our leaders are largely us. And none of that excuses their sins. But it does give us pause. Yet into all of this, good leadership can, as a part of how God has designed it, right the ship. Good leadership can turn things around. And bad leadership definitely makes things worse. 
Micah, though, is not content with pointing out that leadership is, is part of the problem here. He also explains what are the corruptions of these people. What is it that makes these leaders in Israel and Judah so terrible? Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of signs of corrupt leadership, but I think it's a good place to start. The first sign of corrupt leaders is this. They take advantage of their people. In this way, they think that their people exist to serve them instead of them existing to serve their people. Consider verse 2 again and then verse 3. It says, You who hate the good and who love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. The first thing you should note here is these leaders, their morality, their moral compass is messed up. They, they hate what is good and they love what is evil. As I said to you on, on Christmas morning, it's not a question of if you will hate some things, but what you hate. It's not a question of if you will love something, but what will you love? All claims to moral neutrality are mere relativism. They're, or relativism are mere hoaxes. You, you see this on a daily basis. Throughout Scripture, we are told of how the wicked will call good evil and they will call evil good. And we know that we live in such a day. Huge segments of our people think being against wickedness is in fact wicked. We have leaders from the White House to Main Street who celebrate and revel in evil deeds and call them good and call anyone who would oppose such things evil. If you want to see hate from those who claim that love is love, just publicly say something like homosexuality is wrong, evil, and a sin. And then you can watch their mouths foam and them try to cancel you. It's not a question of if you will hate something, but what you will hate. For example, I remember a few years ago, I walked into my office and that little red light was, was blinking on my phone, which meant I had a message. I had a voicemail. And uh, the caller had somehow stumbled upon one of my online uh, articles and left me a message that was laden with expletives. It's a good way to come to church in the morning. And she ended the message by saying, Love bleeping wins. Who can argue with such great <laughs> rhetoric? Notice, second, that these leaders use their perverted definition of right and wrong to abuse and oppress the people. Micah describes this. They tear skin off of people. They rip flesh from their bones. They chop them up like meat in a pot. Well, this is likely poetic language to describe how the leaders are treating Israel and the people of Israel to highlight their abuses, their theft, their oppression, and yes, even their murder. And again, as terrible as that is, we are just as guilty of it today. It's really easy to look back at other people and say, how could you be so terrible? But we literally today rip flesh from the bones of helpless children in the wombs of their mothers. And we have entire groups of people who trumpet that as morally praiseworthy and will not even vote to protect those who come out alive. We literally sever the spines and crush the heads of children. Burn them alive with acid as they cry out to their mothers in their mother's womb. And people celebrate it as good. 
Like we think we're so advanced and evolved as a civilization. We're not. That's, that's moral monsters to celebrate such a thing. God's grace can reach those people too. But that is moral monsters. And it's not just the leaders. Many a political analyst has suggested that conservatives paid a heavy price this last election because of abortion. The people wanted to protect it. Sure, they've been lied to. Sure, they've been deceived. Sure, we've taken some very important steps in the right direction as a nation. But it's easy to look at your leaders and say, it's all them. It's not all them. We put up with it. The blood guilt of this nation is great. And I pray that God would show mercy to us. That we would repent. Another sign of corrupt leaders are lies. The more you sin, the more you have to lie. Consider verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. I mean, that is a vivid picture. Uh, see the corruption of these prophets who base their actions about whether or not they're getting a piece of the action. You can be my friend as long as you put some bread in my mouth. If you're not, I'm going to declare war upon you. But we note that they lead the people astray. Who protect, they lie to protect their status and to keep the people where they want them. And we are in, in many levels again surrounded by liars. It's a few months ago, uh, the CDC said what publicly amused about how they could restore confidence in them because they'd lost so much confidence because they kept saying contradictory things left and right. And they very quietly admitted that many of the things they required for two years didn't work. We made them laws and you had to obey them or you're ostracized. But yeah, you know, they admitted, you know, cloth masks don't really work. They never did. Fauci admitted it once. Then he said they did. And now, well, yeah, they didn't work. Consider the lunacy. The lunacy of thinking that a cloth mask can stop an airborne virus. Consider the lunacy of putting a cloth mask over your face and wearing glasses and having that air escape and fog up your glasses, thinking that you are containing the air. Right? It's, it's absurd. You're lied to. Now, I do want to be careful here, because there's so little public trust anymore, we have now empowered a whole other group of liars on the internet. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who says anything against the approved narrative is a liar, but there are lots of liars out there. So don't exchange one group of liars for another. I'm old enough that I can remember uh, the Y2K craze. I knew people who bought property and were s s hiding up north because the world was going to end. I encourage to you, in general, to whoever speaking, start with a general level of skepticism. The truth will eventually come out. Be patient. Use your rationality. Don't trust the mainstream media and don't trust necessarily everyone who's anti-mainstream media. The truth we will find out eventually, but don't make any major decisions about what somebody says one way or the other. Even in our churches, even in our denominations, we have those who endlessly lie to us. We have people who will tell us there's no such thing 
as theological drift in this institution, in this denomination. There's no cultural or cultural influence here. We're not following the whims of culture. All the while, they parrot and sound more like a woke university professor than they do like a prophet of the Lord. And they will cry out, Peace, if you are to their left. But if you are to their right, they will declare war. This phenomenon is prevalent throughout evangelicalism. If you know the theologian Owen Strand, he was here a few years ago. He was speaking on this and I had dinner with him. And he said to me, he said, this is, this is the problem we run into in evangelicalism. This is what's considered being persuasive and winsome. We coddle everyone to the left of us and then we punch everyone to the right of us. Wherever you are on the spectrum, we coddle those to the left of us because we want to persuade them in. It's a good desire. We want them to come in to the gospel. But man, we hate those people to the right of us. But when you do that, your trajectory is set. Who you're trying to please is where you're going to end up. A third sign of corrupt leaders is this. They hate real justice. Consider verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and who make crooked all that is straight. These leaders, they hate real justice. This doesn't mean they won't talk about justice. Some will do very unjust things in the name of justice. Sometimes, those who speak the most about it are the least in knowledge about what justice actually is. And I love the imagery that Micah uses here. They have taken what God has made straight and they make it crooked. Let me just give you all the nuance in this text. Well, it says that's a sin. But yeah, but you know, there's a lot of trickiness. No, it's really not that tricky. God has made this straight. It's plain. Even a child can read this and understand it. I don't care if you got a DR next to your name. You can't explain away what God has made straight. God has given us His Word so that we might know what is true. And we can know because He has said it. Finally, a sign of corrupt leaders is that they're really just in it for the money. They're in it for the money or the power or the prestige. Look at verse 11. Its heads give government for a bribe, or judgment for a bride. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. I want to be clear here. There is nothing wrong with paying leaders. There are other passages in the Bible that address this. Even paying leaders well. Leadership is important. It makes a tremendous impact, and a laborer is worth his wages. But there is a problem if you are a leader primarily just for the money or status or power. Whatever that heart desire you have, it is your God. The preacher does not preach, or at least he shouldn't, to make money. Though they may make money through preaching, that must not be why he preaches. He must preach because he's got a fire in his belly. And he knows the Lord has said something, and so he must say something. The leader leads to serve God and to serve neighbor, not to promote himself. If it's all about the money, the status, or the power, things will go off the rails quickly. Things like truth and righteousness will be sacrificed for what is viewed as more important. Micah also gives us the consequences of corrupt leadership. And it's not pretty. His first consequence is spiritual blindness. Verse 6, Therefore it shall be night to you, 
without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. God tells the nation of Israel that he is going to shut down the prophets. I am going to be done speaking to you. Between the final Old Testament book and the coming of Christ, there is about 400 years of silence from God. We haven't even been a country that long. 400 years, God said nothing to them. He says, I'm going to remove my light and the sun is going to go down and you will be spiritually blind and without your shepherd. The failure of the prophets and the preachers to speak truthfully to the people has led God to completely shut them off. The second consequence will be shame, especially upon the failed leaders. Verse 7, The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. As the prophets and whatnot fail at their job, a general shame sets in upon their people. The impotence will become clear to everyone around them. As much as they paraded themselves around as great leaders, they failed. Third consequence of corrupt leadership is that God will ignore their cries for help. Could there be anything more intimidating than that? They will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So I want you to picture this. Your country is being destroyed, surrounded by a wicked nation, as Babylon or Assyria, invaded. Friend and families are being murdered or brought away into slavery. Imagine that you were once the very apple of God's eye, but him saying, these things are going to happen, but don't even bother asking me for help. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to answer you. In fact, I'm the one sending these invaders as a judgment for your sin. Now you begin to grasp just a little bit of how shocking such a message would be. Don't cry out to me. I'm not going to answer. The fourth consequence is destruction. And that's where this chapter ends. Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be a plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. God promises the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of his own temple, that it will be like a plowed field and a heap of ruins and with it like wood heaped upon a pile. And God says, I'm doing this because of you, leaders. This will happen because you have failed to do as I have asked. So we can say, in no uncertain terms, that leadership is important, and leadership is a very heavy burden. If you look out at church history, you look out at some of our denominations right now that are failing, I can say to you that at the heart of all of this, is failed leaders. Every one of these denominations that is now basically just ignoring the gospel, ignoring what Scripture said, at one time they believed it. 
At one time, they preached it. But as people climbed the ladder and got into positions and leadership and status within denominations and pulpits became about them, they sacrificed the truth. And just like we're seeing with Israel here, eventually their light is snuffed out. Bad leadership leads eventually to total ruin. So, I've already had an emotional day here at church. That's a lot of bad news for a Sunday morning. This is why we often don't go to the minor prophets. It's a lot of bad news. Where do we go from here? Well, I want to consider for a moment, mostly by contrast, the marks of good leadership, the marks of godly leaders. Lord willing, I will be in this pulpit until I have to, have to retire or the Lord takes me. But eventually, you're going to need new leaders. Eventually, you're going to have to, as a body, appoint new elders, appoint new pastors. These are important things. These are not things to be rubber-stamped. These are things to be taken seriously. What is a mark of a godly leader? The first is this. A godly leader is a man or a woman who fears the Lord. Who fears the Lord. The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is the proper reverence of the one who melts mountains. It is not the fear of man. It is to prioritize God and His standards, not the desires of people and not the desires of the world. The first question every leader, every godly leader should ask is this. Is this right? If it, no, if it's a no, <laughs> you don't do it. Is it that hard? Even the kids get it. But if it is right, then we can ask, what's the best way to do it? What's the most successful way to do it? We often want to ask those questions first. What's the best way we can get this done? Well, first ask you, is this right? Is this faithful? Is this honoring the Lord? Are we doing this because we fear God or because we want something else? The second mark of a good leader goes hand in hand with it. Is to have the Spirit and the power of God. You see this in, in verse 8. The Spirit enables a right fear of God. The Spirit enables a transformed life. In fact, if you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy and in Titus for pastoral leadership, basically those lists of what it means to be, a, be able to be qualified to be a leader in the church is that you have the Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is evident in this person's life. Look at verse 8. But as for me, Micah speaks of himself, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The power of the Spirit is displayed. Note that Micah is willing to say what needs to be said to break from the religious establishment of his day who say there's nothing wrong and God will never judge us. And Micah does this because he fears God, he doesn't fear man, and the Spirit is with him. If you want to find a good leader, you need someone who seeks truth and who will speak it to you, especially when it's not easy. We so often want, we seek out advice, and we just want someone to tell us everything we're doing is right. Just affirm me in what I'm doing. A leader who will only ever affirm you in what you're doing is not a leader. I do note that in our day, there are those who have taken this into 
a hyperbolic and exaggerated state. Well, they will say absurd and crazy things to get likes and clicks and shares. Clickbait, as they call it. And they too are just seeking themselves in their own platform. But being a good leader knows, it means knowing that you may upset people. You may even lose relationships. But goodness, righteousness, and seeking God is worth it. One of the pastors um, I read often says the pulpit is a, a battle station. This is a, and this is why the Bible says the pastoral role is for men because this is an office of war, as it were. One of the hardest things for preachers, and I know this personally and I felt this temptation many times, is that you know when you have your sermon written that you're going to go behind the pulpit and you are going to say things. And these things are going to offend people. And you also know that when you stand behind the pulpit that people will sometimes intentionally and unintentionally distort what you said to make it sound even worse. I was quoted in a very, very left magazine once from a sermon I preached and I looked at all the quotes I go, that doesn't sound like me. Well, it kind of sounds like me. But that doesn't sound like me. And I went back and I listened to the message. I'm like, oh yeah, I did say that. And then I offered all these qualifications and well, they just ignored those. I know that stepping behind the pulpit, I've experienced this, especially in my old church. I knew that as I stood behind that pulpit, I could list the names of the people. People I knew, I loved, and I was doing life with. And I knew they were going to be upset at me from what I was going to say. I have to admit that at least once or twice, I chickened out and skipped that part of my sermon. It might be hard for you to imagine, but more often than not, I stuck to it because that's the job. Pastors don't sign up to be liked. We don't sign up to be your best friend, though we will help you in any way we can. But our job is by the power of the Spirit to preach anyways. To preach what the Lord has said. A man who does not have the courage to speak uncomfortable truth has zero business standing behind a pulpit. Because in the long run, he will do more harm than good. And our churches are evidence of that. Another mark of good leadership, along with fearing the Lord, is that they seek the good of their people. All throughout Micah 3, we see selfish, self-seeking leaders who are only in it for the money, who who exploit, abuse their people for themselves. They build their platform, they pad their bank account because it's all about them. But Micah speaks first because God has told him to, and second because he loves his people no matter how flawed they are. He wants them to repent. Jesus said this about how Christians should lead. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unbelievers, Gentiles, they want power to lord it over other people. They want to get ahead. They want to micromanage. They want their own way. But leadership is primarily about serving others. If God gives you a leadership role, whether it be in the family, the church, at work, or in the state, your role is not there to find your fulfillment. 
We're told so much. Pick a career so that you can find fulfillment in yourself. How selfish are we? Your career is all about you. No, your career is about providing something for somebody else that will benefit them in their life. It is to love God and it is to love neighbor. And you know what? When you do that, you start finding fulfillment when it doesn't become about you. And Christ says that you are not to be like them. You are to be a servant leader. I would be careful here because that's an easily misunderstood term. Right? To be a servant leader does not mean you never lead. doesn't mean you only do what your people want you to do. Leader is leader. But the aim of your leading is their good. It is the good of others. It will require tough decisions. It will not be universally liked. But the motivation is the good of those God has given you in your charge. And all of this is rooted in who Christ is and what he has done. On his path to his throne, on the path to his exaltation, Christ gave his life for you. He died in the place of his people. The one who rules over everything humbled himself as a servant. That is to be our heartbeat. And so to that end, as parents, teachers, lawyers, pastors, elders, managers, owners, military, whatever you may find yourself in, you are to lead in such a way that you look like Christ. You won't do it perfectly, but God is gracious. All leadership roles in this life are like being a shepherd. And you and I are to be under shepherds of the one true shepherd. We look to Christ. He was a servant leader and he offended everyone in John 6 and lost them. That's still servant leadership. So wherever you find yourself as a shepherd in the family, business, nation, or church, when we find families, nations, and churches marked with that kind of leadership, the people are blessed. The people thrive. God rewards it. Where it is lacking, judgment comes. And so this is a call for you and me to see what Christ has done, dying for our sins and laying down his life for us, and to turn the worldly way of thinking on its head. Your calling, your career, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a CEO, is not personal fulfillment. It's not self-expression. It's not self-esteem. It is that you would love God and love neighbor. That you would seek the good of others as you follow after Christ. That you too would pick up your cross and follow him. Lay down your life for others, and then, Christ says, you will find it just as Christ did. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the good leaders we have had in our lives. We do not take them for granted, whether they be teachers, parents, coaches, pastors, senators, governors, presidents, whatever they may be. We thank you for that blessing. And Lord, as we think about our own sins as a people and our own sins as a nation, we realize that our leaders reflect who we are. So we ask that you would change who we are. We ask that you would bring repentance at an individual, in a national, in a state, in a local level. That we would stop seeking ourselves and coming back dissatisfied and instead see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and live. Lord, may that be true of us. 
And may we be a tool in your hand to see that happen here in St. Paul. It's in your name we pray. Amen.